one of the neat things about daredevils is that your heroes are not professionals. They're not cops. They're not superheroes. They're not mass crime fighters. They're not sheriffs. You know, they are just three ordinary working stiffs. Out of the silver shadows and into the click lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. When we say movies, until recently that usually meant feature films on 35mm. Not in this episode, where we'll talk about two different ways of making and showing films. First, I talk about a different size of movie with Julian Antos, technical director of The Music Box in Chicago, whose 70mm film festival returns June 30th. Then I talk about a different format for movies, the serial, with two people who worked on Kino's new release of Daredevils of the Red Circle, Michael Schlesinger, who did the commentary track, and Thad Komarowski, who'll tell us about the digital restoration. Be sure not to miss a single thrilling minute. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio today at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Now I'll just head off to the studio for our first segment. Wait a minute, this door's locked. And what's that coming in through the vents? <coughs> Curse you, 39013. For once, I'm not interviewing someone on Skype. I'm on location, in the projection booth at the Music Box Theater in Chicago. And technical director Julian Antos is showing me around. So no clickety-clack, because it's digital now. Yeah, just just the wheezing. <laughs> Where do the 70mm projectors live? Uh, they're just, just these two guys here, and they do 35 and 70, so we switch them over. Okay. Uh, which takes about... well. It takes like an hour, but it really takes like a day to calibrate everything and make sure everything's just right. Uh, so where's DCP is projected from which? Uh, so it's projected oh, from it's that guy, okay. and there's a server right there. And okay. So you don't have to get on the ladder drives. to put it in everything? No, you have to get on the ladder to change the filters and bulbs and all that. Yeah, yeah it's funny at the... Uh, Arclight theaters, most of them don't have booths, so the projectors are just in a little box, and you can, if you're sitting right under it, you can hear it, and it's really distracting. Yeah, yeah I noticed that when I went there when they first opened it. Yeah. It was just kind of this thing. That, yeah. More like a planetarium yeah. or something. Yeah, it's kind of gross. <laughs> <laughs> he picks up a kind of gear spool with sprocket teeth for both 70 and 35. Many years ago, uh, I think it was a screening of Patton. Um, the, well, maybe I shouldn't. We'll, we'll just say someone someone was running a print of, I think it was Patton, and, and maybe they probably shouldn't have been, and uh, didn't quite know what they were doing, and so all the sprocket teeth got ripped off, and uh, 
then they were down to one projector, so they just had to run uh, each 20-minute reel one one at a time and have little breaks. Um, this is that's from the dark days, but we keep right. it as a reminder. We leave the booth and go downstairs to talk in the lounge. Explain what 70 millimeter is. It's double the width, but that means it's four times the image quality. It's some something like that. Um, it's it's double the width, and then it's one perforation higher, so it's 1.25 times the height. Uh, and the aspect ratio is 2.2, which is actually slightly less wide than CinemaScope. Um, so if you get into the uh, quantitative analysis of it, it's uh, so, something like three or four times uh, the resolution. And, um, Though it can be even wider than CinemaScope. Yes, for uh, Ultra, Ultra Panavision 70, which we became acquainted with last year, and it's 276. Um, Would you show Ben Hur? Uh, no, Hateful Eight was 276. Oh, it was okay. There are no good. Everybody always asks if there are any good prints of Ben Hur, and uh, as far as we can find, there are not. Um, the best one we can find was faded and in like Switzerland or something like that. Um, so there's there's a lot of titles people want to see, but the uh, the prints that are actually around are, uh, are very few, unfortunately. Well, yeah, let's talk about that for a second. So to get these prints, I mean, occasionally they strike a new print, mm -hmm. but mostly are these all vintage prints? Um, the ones we're, the ones we're showing of uh, the, the older titles like West, West Side Story and um, Lord Jim uh, and 2001, of course, is a new print. Um, so th those are those are all restrikes. Um, in the case of Lord Jim, uh, that print is made from the original camera negative uh, for 2001, and I believe West Side Story. I think uh, 2001 is definitely from a restoration negative, so a negative that was made around 10 years ago. Um, so th those are all new prints. Um, the blow-up prints are all vintage prints from the 80s. So like uh, Top Top Gun is an original print, and uh, somehow. There's there's three prints left of that from the original release, and so we got all three of them and looked at them and AB'd them and tried to figure out what would be best to show. Um, but the the older classic roadshow titles is for the most part new prints. There's like 15 or 20 uh, titles that have been well taken care of, and there are new showable prints of, um, but. The, uh, if, it, if it wasn't reprinted in the 80s or 90s or 2000s, um, then it's going to be faded um, because the, the only color film stock that was used uh, for 70 millimeter was Eastman Color, which fades to pink. Uh, we had in the first 70 Fest, there was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and that was an original print. And it, it sounded great, um, and it was, it was sharp, but there was no, no color left. Um, yeah, so so those <laughs> those obscurities like the, there won't be Song of Norway or uh, no. the Hallelujah Trail anytime <laughs> soon. Unfortunately, not. Yeah. So yeah, well, let's talk about the 2001 print. So mm -hmm. you showed 2001, I know, because I took my kids to it um, a couple of years ago. But uh, 
not the, uh, this is a, a new print since then, yeah. which you basically commissioned or encouraged. Yep. Um, so it's brand new. Came straight from the lab, uh, and we we wanted we wanted basically to ensure that we'd always have a really nice print of two thousand one to show. Um, there's been kind of a lot of renewed interest in seventy millimeter recently, which is great. Um, but it also means that a lot of venues who weren't showing 70 before are showing it now. And so the, the few prints that are around are getting used a lot and maybe not by the most experienced people. Um, so we wanted to make sure, you know, this, this print's just going to stay at the music box. We're going to be the only ones handling it. Oh, really? Um, you know, no fingerprints, no scratches. Um. So you can do that? You basically, yeah. like, bought a print without buying a print? It's pretty much the, yeah, the, you know, the legality of it, uh, you know, Warner Brothers wouldn't, wouldn't agree to, um, you know, just selling a print outright. So it is, it's technically still theirs, but it's. For, for all intents and purposes. <laughs> right. It was getting noisy in the lounge, so we moved to the lobby. Though, as you'll hear, there was another kind of noisy patron there, too. A lot of the, the, the 70 millimeter films, I mean, they were big productions. Some of them turned out to be kind of white elephants. Yeah. yeah again, Song of Norway, Krakatoa, like, Sure, like John. 70% of them. Yeah. <laughs> What's been a good discovery for you? What's what's something that you saw that turned out to be kind of great when you saw it up on a big screen that, that wasn't our, obviously already great, like Lawrence of Arabia? I mean, Cleopatra has such a bad reputation, but I, I, I sat there for four hours and was totally delighted by it. That um, was, you know, beautiful and excessive and just, just something that... It really couldn't be made today. I mean, all, if you think about like all the just all those extras. Uh, you know, if you have a movie of that scale now, probably most of the extras are going to be CGI'd in. Um, so when you think about all the people who worked on that movie, it's totally nuts. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that that print was great. That was a restoration print from Fox, um, and all the color is so beautiful. Yeah, the one that I, I kind of felt like that was Lord Jim. I mean, yeah. not, not a great movie, yeah. but a good movie. Yeah. A nice grown-up movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, We're showing that again, and the sound problem has been fixed. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's... I mean, the technical issues involved. I mean, obviously, four times plus the real estate on film means yeah. much bigger boxes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, the shipping's a nightmare. For the most part, each reel is shipped separately, uh, so a lot of the times, you know, you'll get most of your, most of your reels, and then like one or two will be trailing behind, or one will have been lost at the FedEx warehouse. Uh, last year, I had to make a couple trips out to to Skokie to their <laughs> big distribution center and say, "I'm looking for this you know, big metal box. <laughs> it's really beat up. Have you seen it?" very important <laughs> um, and up in the booth it's um, you know if, if, if you're an experienced projectionist and run film day in day out it's not terribly different from 35 um, but you need to be a lot more careful because uh, the film is moving a little bit faster um, 
and it's putting putting more wear on the projector if things aren't aligned properly. And, um, gate tension is a really critical thing. That the amount of pressure that's being put on the film as it goes goes through. Um, and if that's not perfect, you'll have all sorts of focus issues. And if it's too tight, uh, you'll start to destroy your projectors um, and scratch your film, uh, which you don't want to do because these prints cost you know, like twenty thousand dollars each to make, uh, and some some are totally irreplaceable. Um, you can't do magnetic sound anymore. Um, so if you if you uh, you know, forget to demagnetize your projector um, and erase a track on your print. There's nothing you can do to replace it. And wow! Well, I've sufficiently pissed off <laughs> somebody. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the blow-ups. Tell me about that. I mean, at first it seems like that's a little bit of a con. Mm-hmm. But is there there's value in seeing something blow yeah, up from Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, we started doing that last year. Um, and, you know, we don't, we don't want to say a blow-up is, um, you know, we, tr- we try very hard to differentiate uh, the blow-ups from uh, the things that originated on 70, and we list that in our program and, uh, you know, often try and say, you know, sort of what the workflow is for each film that we show. Um, you know, like go oh, this uh, Kong Skull Island uh, was shot digitally, and um, you know the print of Lord Jim you're seeing is from the camera negative, uh, and things like that. So we want to we want to make sure the audience knows what they're seeing. Um, but the blowout prints are really nice for a few reasons. Um, uh, first, they usually come from the original camera negative. Either that or a 65 millimeter internegative that was blown up from the camera negative, um, and they're typically very carefully made. Uh, they were made for major markets, um, so big cities, LA, New York, uh, sometimes Chicago, sometimes not. They're very they're they're sort of the equivalent of, of what we would call show prints for 35, um, which are prints that were like made for a premiere. Um, or a special screening with the director present, but, and, you know, basically the the closest idea of what the director wanted you to see. Um, so they're really uh, it's really high quality stuff. Um, and then there's the magnetic sound, uh, which is has a much more dynamic range uh, than an optical soundtrack on a 35 print. Um, so pretty much everything's better than their 35 counterparts um, uh, even though they're not um, you know not originated on 70 okay um, that one of the things I, I guess I kind of knew but learned on Wikipedia was just the Soviets made a ton of yeah. 70 millimeter films have you ever tried to track down anything what's what's the great I have, loss I have, 70 I have not gotten very far um, but I do want to I do want to explore that um is personally, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we could sell a ton of tickets, but if if someone were to go over there and sort of comb through everything and find like the best, the best print, the, of the weirdest of, movie, yeah, like the one um, great one, yeah. And the Soviet color stocks are really, um, they're really weird. Um, they're like sort of this yellowy green palette. It's really beautiful, and I'd love to see that on seventy. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, they don't quite know who to talk to about that. Right. That's for next year, maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, how does this, this process work? I mean, obviously, you know if they've struck a new print of West Side Story, they're, mm-hmm. they're probably, like, passing that word around a bit. Uh, when we first started doing this, we basically talked to every film distributor and asked, you know, hey, what do you have in 70? Um, some of them have lists, some of them don't. Um, some of them will have a list of titles, but no notes on uh, what kind of conditions the prints are in. Um, so, so occasionally we'll have something sent here and evaluate it and see whether or not it's worth showing. Um, and unfortunately, the Academy Film Archive isn't loaning 70 prints right now because uh, I think they had a couple of bad incidents with other venues damaging the prints. Um, they have a few very nice things I'd like to show, but <laughs> maybe someday. You win them over eventually. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, let's let's just talk about the music box in general. Mm-hmm. What's you know you you a venue that's committed to film, although you show many things digitally, mm-hmm. including the, the movie that's about twenty feet away right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's the you know what's the prognosis for showing real film, as far as you're concerned? Um, as far as I'm concerned, I and mean, this is sort of why I wanted to work here, is uh, is because they still show film as much as they can, and I I really push for it for for everything. Um, you know, if I had if I had any control over the situation, which I don't, everything would still be filmed. Uh, you know, quiet passion, obit, sure, make thirty five prints of them. Digital projection is just so boring and lifeless, and I don't. I I have I have yet to leave leave the house to see something on DCP. Um, like occasionally, I'll like go to the multiplex to see something with some friends, but it's just like so divorced from my idea of what movies are and what I you know what I grew up with. Um, so yeah, uh, we still show a lot of it. There's been handful of film releases recently uh, after hatefully there was Son of Saul on 35 uh, which looked great um, this movie The Love Witch uh, and you know, Dunkirk so it's like one or two a year um, which is obviously much less than there used to be um, but there's still filmmakers that push for it which is great but uh, you know I think I think film will be around as long as people demand it and you do kind of have to be uh, not rude but kind of pushy about it um, and say you know it's important to us to show film it's important to our audience that we show film um, and you know if, if nobody asks for it no no prints are going to get made um, that was another reason we wanted to do this 2001 print is just to support the cause yeah. and have, have another print out there in the world. Many years later, that baby would grow up to be a great filmmaker, shooting exclusively in Dimension 150. The Music Box's 70mm Festival begins on June 30th. 
See the whole schedule and get tickets at Music Box Theater, that's theater ending in R-E, dot com. I'll also have the link in the show post at nitrateville.com. I don't know, but it's a cinch we can't get down the ladder. I'll bet you recognize the genre, even if you can't name the title. That's the 1939 Republic serial Daredevils of the Red Circle, in which three circus performers, each with a different skill, if not quite superpower, try to track down the villainous 39013 a revenge-mad ex-con known by his prison number and played by Flash Gordon's Ming the Merciless himself, Charles Middleton. Co-directed by William Whitney and John English, with lots of special effects by the Lidecker brothers, Daredevils of the Red Circle is widely ranked as one of the greatest examples of the genre. But that genre is one that's kind of dismissed today as nostalgia for people who were kids back then. Yet think about it. What's the dominant genre of our own time? Action movies starring heroes and villains in colorful costumes. If you want to find the roots of popular movies in the summer of 2017, in many ways looking at Daredevils of the Red Circle gets you closer than Citizen Kane or the French New Wave. Kino Lorber's new Blu-ray and DVD release is spectacular, a 2K restoration from a 4K scan of the camera negative and I'm going to talk about it with two people who contributed to it. Michael Schlesinger is a leading figure in classic film distribution, having rescued countless films from preserved obscurity in studio vaults over the years. He did the commentary track for Daredevils of the Red Circle, and I started by talking with him about why this serial in particular. That period between 37 and 41 in Republic, where Whitney and English did something like 17 serials in a row. I mean, that is, many people consider that the golden age of serials. And uh, so that, you know, Daredevils is really among the best of the best, which is not to say serials from other studios and other Republic serials aren't good, but they really were clicking on all cylinders during that period. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's not a period when there are that many movies that you would call pure action movies. I kind of think it's like most dangerous game and stagecoach. And that's about it. Uh, you know, but this comes close to that. I mean, even as there's plenty of exposition in it, certainly, (laughs) uh, you know, they really keep the action going and keep it from being too repetitive. There are really only so many things you can do in any given situation. You can have car chases, you can have fist fights, you can occasionally have a boat chase, uh, maybe do some airplane stuff, uh, you know, literally hanging off a cliff. But, uh, and of course, gun, gun battles. Uh, but, you know, there really is a finite amount of things you can do. And, you know, when you're, when you're putting together a serial that's going to run four to four and a half hours, uh, obviously some repetition is going to set in. But then again, these weren't designed to be watched all in one sitting. You know, binge watching, you know, didn't exist back then. And uh, and part of the fun of a serial was waiting, you know, having to wait a whole week to find out how they got out of it, even if they figured you figured it out ahead of time, because you know a lot of times you'd see a car over the cliff, and then the next chapter you'd see that he jumped out of the car just in time, you know. But um, 
But as long as there was enough action to keep it going and, and, you know, that fit logically into the plot. And, yeah, these basically were made primarily for younger audiences. So, you know, you didn't want to make the the storylines too complicated uh, because you didn't want to lose them. So these were, in a very real sense, they really were – family films in that regard maybe family's the wrong word but they were aimed toward younger audiences and uh, that's why they often played on saturday matinees uh because that's you know kids really like that stuff one of the neat things about daredevils is that your heroes are not professionals they're not cops they're not superheroes they're not masked crime fighters they're not sheriffs you know they are just three ordinary working stiffs who do kind of get dragged into this 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 uh, monstrous plot the the chapter one title and and it is because nobody can be trusted um as i said even dixon you never you never know throughout the serial if he's on 39013 side or not they pretty much have to rely on themselves because nobody can be trusted i think that's one of the great things about the serial is this whole aura of of um, questioning it's like are we alone is this a friend is this an enemy we don't know and and so they really aren't except perhaps for Carol Landis' character, but she's a girl, so you know, right. <laughs> there's only so much she can do. But the the operative point is that they are pretty much on their own, and that's one of the things that makes the serial so interesting is that they are basically starting at square one. They don't have they have their circus skills, but you know they don't have any expertise in, for lack of a better term, law enforcement. So uh, they really are, in a very real sense, making it up as they go along. But boy, they can fight in three-piece suits, can't they? They sure can. That was <laughs> well. That's the way things were back then, you know. And their hats never came off. Yeah, I let you they, have... they they would they would you know they actually used bands to hold their hats on during fights. Oh, really? They're not visible. They're not visible on the on the screen. But um, yes. That's... That's nice to know. Yeah, I mean, I, that is one of the things you talk about in the commentary, which is just such a sign of the times, as you say, is that everyone is impeccably dressed. There's a famous quote from Louis B. Mayer. Uh, he said, if it's an MGM picture, it has to look like an MGM picture, even if it's a B. And then you would see people who are supposedly starving to death. No money, no nothing. They're living in this gigantic apartment. The man is in a three-piece suit and tie and hat. The woman is a beautiful dress, you know, and he, she, her hair is perfect. Her makeup is perfect. And I said, really? You're starving? <laughs> you have no money? Am I supposed to believe this? You know, I mean, Hollywood was, of course, you know, the spinner of fairy tales. Sometimes, you know, now, to be fair, most people did dress well back in those days. If you look at newsreel footage of ball games, uh, you know, that were played in the daytime, and you'd, look, you'd see people in the stands, and the men were all wearing suits and ties and hats. It really wasn't until the 50s and the 60s that people started getting casual, you know. Let's talk about how it was made in general. So it has five writers to start. Do you know anything about how these things were generated at the studio? I, you know, not to, I mean, if you look, every serial back in the old days, at least up through World War II, had multiple writers. There were guys who just specialized in this stuff, like Barney Sarecki, for example, and uh, and Ford Beebe, you know, and, and they just, you know, that was their job was to write serials. And, uh, and you know, you had, because you were turning out, you know, three and a half, four and a half hour serials, um, it was impossible for one man to do it, at least back then, later in the 50s, when they were just building around huge amounts of stock footage, one writer could handle it. 
but in the old days they needed, and they, and I, they wouldn't. I don't think they would be in a writer's room like on your show of shows. You know, somebody would be doing chapter one, another would be doing chapter two, three, and then they, you know, kind of merge everything and get together and and make it all. You know, and and there are stories, you know, where nothing makes any sense. And the editor has to sit down and try to reconcile all this stuff, and sometimes can't do it. And but the, the the belief was, well, who remembers what happened four weeks ago? Because you know it never occurred to them. I mean, this was disposable stuff. They were just grinding it out. I mean, if you had said to Herbert J. Yates that you know seventy five, eighty, eighty five years later, people would still be watching these serials in their homes, he would have thought you were absolutely insane. So they did the best they could. They didn't have big money. They didn't have big time. They they just ground it out and hoped it all came together in a, in a uh, sensible way. In that regard, Universal probably were the better serials in, in a storytelling standpoint because they really put a lot of care into the scripts. And so their their serials tended to make more sense because they, they did focus on the writing a bit more and, and wanted it, whereas Columbia was sort of all over the map, although... You know, Columbia's high point was in late 30s, early 40s when James Horn was directing them because he kind of realized that these were kind of silly anyway, so he just played them largely for comedy and, and just exaggerated. Everybody's doing wild takes and stuff like that. And, and the serials he did at Columbia are far more enjoyable than many of the others because they are, in a sense, winking at the audience. I mean, this is a guy who was a great comedy director. You know, he worked with Laurel and Hardy and Our Gang and everybody and... and uh, just realized, you know, we can't compete with Republic, we can't compete with Universal, let's just do our own thing and have fun with it. So so they did it, uh, like you say, uh, different people working on different chapters. I suppose that works as long as you sort of have a reset yeah. for each chapter, which is it ends right. with Right, well, I mean, they, they worked from an outline. They, you know, they definitely had knew that they had to have story points to hit. You know, it was basically, they were just filling in the blanks, writing the dialogue, and getting from point A to B to C to D, all right, so the directors. We have William Whitney, famous name in serials. John English, mm-hmm. yeah, a little less famous name in serials, but both of them right. serial veterans for sure. Yeah, and then they both went on to do features, mostly B-Westerns. Um, the, the, generally, what happened is that um, Whitney would be out on location doing all the action stuff, and English would stay in the studio doing the dialogue scenes. So they, they sort of worked uh, harmoniously as a team in that regard. They, they Sometimes it was the other way around. Sometimes they would both be on the set, you know, depending. But that was is how it was normal, normally done, because each one had that specialty. And uh, and it worked quite well. And in fact, I believe it was Alan Barber who noted that, you know, uh, English, who was in the studio, was always very natally attired, sharp as a tack. And Whitney, who was out in the boondocks, would, would be, you know, dressed you know, like a bum. Because <laughs> <laughs> he didn't care. Because he was away from the studio and he said, screw this, I'll wear whatever I want. And then the other big contributors mm-hmm. to the uh, to the look and the and the impact of the picture is the Lidecker brothers, right? Well, of course they were Republic. I mean, they were just they were just were phenomenal at, at what they did. Uh, and one of the reasons their work is so good is that, especially their miniature work, is that people most people would when they did miniatures they would do tabletop stuff inside the studio, and you know, and it looked phony. And whereas the Lidecker's would go outside and build like one quarter scale or one six scale or whatever, so they're out there in the in in the sunshine shooting with natural light, 
and it you know and it looks much more realistic at one point as i mentioned on the, on the commentary there's a scene where an oil derrick blows up and catches fire and eventually collapses and I defy almost anybody to look at this and say, what is the real oil derrick and what is the miniature? I mean, you can make some educated guesses, but, uh, but you know, the matching is terrific. And, and they, you know, they really do their, knew their stuff. Yeah, no, and, I, was, uh, I was very Im- impressed with that. Um, it was interesting. I remember, you know, years ago listening to the commentary on the first Lord of the Rings films and Peter Jackson talks about them building what he called bigatures as opposed to miniatures that even their miniatures were like 12 feet tall and stuff. And that's basically what the Lidecker brothers were doing too. Right. In fact, when when we were in New Zealand a few years ago, uh, Jackson very graciously gave us a bunch of us a tour of, of his little studio and well, little is hardly the word for it. But this was after the the Lord of the Rings trilogy had been completed, and they were keeping all the miniatures in storage. And and I was looking at these things, and not only was the attention to detail remarkable. I mean, just really, it it I was floored because I just naturally assumed that had all been CGI, and it wasn't. Those were practical bigature, if you want to call them that, sets. You know that that, and they were real and they were tactile. I didn't touch them, you know. But, right. <laughs> uh, you know, but you could tell that. You know, but it's just wow. I mean, they, you know, they didn't just slap this stuff together. They they put some serious work into that. Right. And you know, and that's sort of the sad thing today, is that when you do go for practical effects, people become so besotted with CGI that they don't realize that what they're watching is real anymore. I remember going to see the Lone Ranger, which great many people hated, and. And I'm sitting there, and I thought it was wonderful. And I'm saying, my God, you know, this is this is a real train running on real tracks. These are real stuntmen riding real horses. This is a real town with real extras running in it. That is actually Monument Valley. It's not a background plate. You know, I mean, it was an incredibly expensive movie, but to their credit, almost all of it was on the screen. And I don't think anybody appreciated the reality of that because they just assumed it was all fake. I mean, there was some CGI in the picture, of course, but an awful lot of it was, 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 was in camera or on set. And I don't think people really appreciated that because what happened is everybody reviewed the budget. Right. And, and fortunately, some critics, um, you know, especially uh, the one from the New York Times whose names I've forgotten, uh, Tony Scott, um, actually came back a couple months later and wrote a Sunday piece of sort of reevaluating Lone Ranger, and he said, I... I think we, you know, we may have judged this too harshly, you know, so who knows. And the, the tie into that, of course, is that Republic made a couple of Lone Ranger serials, so you right. see how it all ties together in the circle of life. There you go. That was so brilliantly <laughs> conceived from the beginning right. by you, I know. <clears throat> but again, back then, obviously, a special effect like that, you know, you knew it was real. It might be a glass painting. It might be a rear projection. And yes, there would be some miniatures if there was like a, a train wreck or something. But um but for the most part, everything was real. And I think people ex- ex- expected that, and, and they sort of sensed it. Even if they didn't know it consciously, they sort of said, yeah, that is a real train going off the rails. Even if it wasn't a real train, even if it was a miniature, it was still a real miniature train. It wasn't faked in any, in any meaningful way. Right, right. All right, now to the, the star uh, nominally, I suppose the three circus performers are the stars of the movie. They're the heroes, but the well, star—we all know the star—is Charles Middleton. Well, of course, he uh, looks like the 
serial villain par excellence. <laughs> yeah, wonderful character actor, which is interesting <clears throat> because in some ways he's tremendously limited. He just kind of has that one biblical note to his voice, and yet it's used yeah. so beautifully. But, you know, he also played, I mean, he played Lincoln in several films, so he wasn't always a villain. You know, so it's, uh, but yeah, but villainy is what he did best, you know. He was very, and and because he had that very deep melodious voice, and, and he did have that sometimes that sort of theatrical sense of uh, delighting in his own evil, you know the way George Zuko or Lionel Atwill could, you know. Right. And, and there's that one scene where he returns to the basement and says to Miles Manor, "Did you think I wouldn't come back?" You know. Yeah, which is which is a very funny moment. Well, yeah, I mean, I think he, he's one of those people you really see kind of nineteenth-century acting. I mean, his yeah. career, I suppose, just barely goes back to the tail end of sort of Victorian theater, right? Um, but he grew up steeped in that, and you, and you definitely mm -hmm. get a sense. You can imagine uh, some barnstormer. <laughs> you know, so, sure. some troop doing melodramas when you hear him talk. Yeah, well, as I always say about the golden age of Hollywood, uh, to paraphrase Nor Norma Desmond, uh, they had voices then. Right. Because you think back to all the stars of the 30s and 40s, you know, the Cagneys and the Bogarts and the Cary Grants and then the uh, the Betty Davises and the Greta Garbos and the Grouchos and W.C. Fields and Lawl and Hardy. And, you know, these are guys that you could do impressions of because they had incredibly distinctive voices. Today we don't have that. Who could do an impression of Matt Damon or Ben Affleck? Right. You know, or Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, they, they just they do not have distinctive voices at all. You can only do you know? Christopher Walken. It's the only one. Yeah, but he's been around since the sixties. <laughs> right. You know. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah, yeah, and you know, you think Shatner's been around since the fifties. Nicholson's been around since the fifties. So uh, there, Eastwood's been around since the fifties, but. There are hardly any new people when, say, new, let's say, post-Star Wars, which is now 40 years old, right. makes me feel old, um, <laughs> that um, well, you could do an impression and people would recognize that. Yeah, yeah. Um, They'd say, oh, that's, that's George Clooney. Uh, right. No, it isn't. <laughs> and I love George Clooney, but his voice isn't particularly distinctive either. Right, or you hear them do a voiceover, a commercial or something, and you're mm -hmm. left kind of wondering, you're going, wait, that, I know that voice. I, that's uh, <clears throat> that guy. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's funny. Um, uh, I, I just finally got around to seeing The Boss Baby, which is actually a very funny film. And um, the little boy has a Gandalf alarm clock. And, uh, and you know, every morning it goes up, it goes, wake up, halfling, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it does all the lines, you shall not pass and stuff like that. And I thought, my God, they actually got Ian McKellen to do a cameo. And then you see the end credits. It's not Ian McKellen. It's somebody in, in, impersonating him. But he does such a spot on impression of him that I really was fooled into thinking it was Ian McKellen. But again, Ian McKellen is in his 70s. He's a guy who's been around right. forever. Yeah, he, that joke wouldn't have worked if it hadn't been somebody with a distinctive voice. Yeah, yeah. All right, so anything else that you want to say about uh, Daredevils of the Red Circle? Why why people should love Go out and buy it. Go out and buy it. Because it is one of the greatest serials, and it's, it's an unusual serial, because as I said, it's not Dick Tracy or Flash Gordon or The Lone Ranger or some, for lack of a better term, franchise title. It, it, is, it is something unique in itself, and because it does have that kind of for lack of a better term, ordinariness about it. I think that's what ironically makes it special. 
because in a way you could almost identify with these guys who've been sort of thrust into the situation and have to use their unique gifts to get out of it. And also it's nice, you know, there's always a dog, right? But the dog actually does contribute to the story. The dog is kind of like Lassie in a way. It's like, okay, there's no kid in the well, but, you know. (laughs) But uh, the dog often, you know, proves useful in a way that that sort of justifies him being in the story. Well, as you note a couple of times, he's the only one who really seems to be thinking ahead in the picture. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, it's a little little push, you know, uh, in the Browns of Credulity, but then, you know, you aren't expecting stark realism the minute you go in to, to see the film in the first place. Come on! Making Daredevils of the Red Circle look like it was shot yesterday on home video was a feat of digital restoration. I asked film historian and digital film restorer Thad Komarowski how that was done. Well, Paramount did the uh, the 4K film restoration, as you know. Um, they did a full scan of it, and uh, which really, for what for a Republic serial, 4K is kind of insane. But uh, we did the digital restoration at 2K. You know, that's you got to give credit to Frank Tarzi. He wanted to make it look even better. Um, and uh, and who is you know, he? He is uh, the SVP of Acquisitions and Business Development at Kino. Um, he's been all over. He was at Olive first, and then he's over the, at Kino now. And, uh, you know, he, he, he just wants to make a lot of ni- uh, nice things happen, which is why uh, the Kino uh, label, which was already great, has sort of gotten a shot in the arm because he's, put, he's uh, willing to, you know, with this Paramount deal, there's a, a lot of films that are in pretty rough shape. Um, that Paramount's delivering, and so he's making them look better for Blu-ray, which they should. Why did Paramount want to devote so much effort to this Republic title in the first place to go to the trouble of making a 4K scan of it? I think they just realized that it was uh, a much an, an in-demand title, so they wanted to do a lot of work, and I think that's what they're doing with Captain Marvel as well. Um, I haven't touched that one yet, um, or I don't know if I will even. But you know, it's just it's just nice to see that a lot of attention is being given to it because I guess sometimes the studios realize this is the one time we're going to be able to do this, so let's do it right. And uh, fortunately, that's what's happening with a lot of Paramount material, not just some of the serials but some of the cartoons and live action shorts like i said it looked pretty good already but there was a there were a lot of issues um unfortunately that nitrate material is uh you know as all estate film does deteriorates and uh there was a lot of shrinkage issues too um you know when every time it hit a scene change or cut there was a bump or um shake so all those had to be fixed by me and brett wood who also does a lot of digital restoration for the uh kino label and uh you know it it was a fun one to do because it's like it's about as you know this is probably gonna ruffle out of feathers but i think it's as good as cinematography got for 1939 it it really you know it's and it really set the template for a lot of the Republic serials. Um, you know, people just want a lot of 
action and fighting, and uh, there's certainly a lot of that. In it. Any other technical problems that you faced that, that were kind of a challenge? With all of these projects, it's just trying to make sure that you don't do, make anything look any worse, um, which was one of my uh, big uh, pet peeves. Um, I'll, I'll just give an example for animation. There's a there's a process called digital video noise reduction, and all digital restoration uses it to an effect. Um, you can probably find a lot of articles online explaining it in detail, but what it does is it removes automatically, it removes what it detects as dirt, specks, uh, scratches, and with animation as well as live action, it'll, it, it can take away too much, like it'll like if someone's arm moves, it'll mistake that for uh, film dirt and it'll make it a big blob or erase it. And um, one of my jobs is to make sure that that doesn't happen because a lot of the time people, uh, restoration houses will just throw the auto clean on and, uh, you know, you get these horrible looking releases. But what you can do if you want to spend the time and the money is you can go in and say, well, I like what it did with this frame, except for that. And you can select like the arm and make sure that it doesn't disappear. So what's there um, is the original arm movement, and but the rest of the frame is cleaned up. This is a really fun serial. Um, like I said, beautifully shot and made. Um, funny in parts. Uh, it g gives what the people wanted out of a Republic serial, a lot of action, a lot of fighting, and uh, you know, it's it's just really entertaining, and the fact that this 12, uh, 12 chapter serial is available fully restored for under $20 in high definition is kind of insane, but uh, you know, go, go for it. There's the Granville Museum Center. It represents quite a lot of money. Amusement center, eh? That's it. It'll be next. Daredevils of the Red Circle is out now on Blu-ray and DVD from Kino Lorber. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Julian Antos of the Music Box Theater in Chicago, Thad Komarowski, and Michael Schlesinger. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure not only to subscribe to Nitrateville, but to leave us a review at iTunes. That helps get the word out and raise our profile at the site. And will we survive 39013's poison gas attack and be back next time? Yes, we will with Dennis Bartok and Jeff Joseph, the authors of the book A Thousand Cuts, about the subculture of saints and scoundrels who collected movies and saved our movie heritage. <laughs>